Hey everybody, it's Chet. Welcome to another episode of the Dark Art Society Podcast. Episode 129. Can't believe it. It's kind of crazy. Things to say about the dark art movement and art academia, academia, however you say it, and how it views the dark art movement or the pop surrealist movement or any new movement of art. It was enlightening, to say the least. Uh, yeah, really good, really good interview conversation. Carrie's great, super cool. Uh, I've been, let's see, today's Labor Day. I'm recording this on Labor Day at about 11.23 a.m. And I'm just having my, the final day of my sale, my um, weirdo one-off glow-in-the-dark cast, resin cast sale, which went pretty well. Uh, so I'm able to pay the bills that I owe, which is good. So that's ending tonight, and uh, as you can tell, I'm kind of exhausted and burnt out, but what else is new? Anyway, I've just been dealing with that. I haven't been able to really get much done on anything else other than all this web store management, taking photos, pricing things, promoting, blah, 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 all the boring part of being an independent artist I've been dealing with since like Wednesday or so. Uh, that's pretty much it. It's taken up all my time. I'm dying to get back to the easel. I have a lot to do. I hardly get to paint for fun anymore, which is a bummer. I have to change that soon, but I just have such a huge weight on my shoulders of things that need to be done. I don't know how I got myself in this situation. I'm really trying to get out of it, but um, I know how I got in this situation. I got in the situation by taking on too much in order to pay the bills. So, um, you know, I can't say that that was a bad thing to do because I, I have to keep paying the bills, so I got to keep taking stuff on, but it's really turned into this huge, huge crushing weight on my shoulders. But, I can still have a uh, positive attitude about everything. I'm not stressing too badly, which is good. That's probably due to the fact that I've been really doubling down on my meditation practice, all that stuff that I should have been doing in the first place. So that's helpful. Anyway, oh my, um, my, I guess my yeah, promotion for my Patreon. I don't know if I should end it or not. It was going to be a month. I, I give a free glow-in-the-dark gas mask pin to anybody who joins at any level. And that went pretty well. But it's still, I still, you know, I need, I need to get more. That's, that's what I'm hoping is going to get me out of this mess is the Patreon. Because if I can get make enough money there, I won't have to keep taking things on, having sales, 
every couple of weeks and all that. It's a lot of work. So if you want to join, you can still get a pin. I'm gonna, I guess I'm going to keep it going probably. Maybe until I get my get the the pledges that I need, the amount of pledges that I need. So you can go to Patreon.com/slash/ChetZar, and I'm basically teaching everything I know about creating art, from oil painting to sculpture to molding, casting, how I do my frame corners, everything, everything I know. I'm creating tutorials. I'm also giving daily process updates of everything I'm working on. Uh, time-lapse videos, everything, all my energies is focused on the Patreon. Um, so yeah, it's really great. People people really seem to like it. Uh, I do mentorships for 100 bucks a month that are pretty amazing. I have a few of those open still, but um, we talk on Skype once a month and I sort of help art, you know, artists move to the next level and give critiques and which has been really fun for me and i see artwork all the time uh, by younger artists that are maybe not as experienced in painting and i just can see there's i could see oh you know if they would just do this instead of that it would improve the painting by like a thousand percent but you know you just can't say that <laughs> otherwise you're gonna look like kind of like a dick even though it's coming from a good place but anyway I, I i've been dealing with helping people through through issues like that small small things um, to improve their artwork and, and the results have been really really incredible uh yeah it's really cool so anyway Patreon.com slash Chetzar if you want to help support me. and uh, You can join for even a dollar. So, anyway, okay, where are we at now? I have to get this done because my granddaughters are coming over. Um, a few minutes. Okay, so let's go. Let's go to new subscribers. Got a bunch of new subscribers. I think Randall B. Perkins was the last one I mentioned. Percasso. Uh, we've got MC Dante. Thank you for joining. Cootie Von Cool. Thank you so much. Vanessa Lemon joined. That's very cool of you, Vanessa. You were great on the show. Joe Evil Donkey Tolliver. Thank you, Joe. And let's see. Angelica Medrano. Thank you, Angelica, for supporting the Dark Art Society podcast. If you want to support and step up like these folks have, you can join for just a buck a month at patreon.com slash darkartsociety. And I'm going to have a meeting right after this about the website that we're building or is built actually i think it's it's almost done josh geyser and uh, jeff bradford been working on and we're just figuring out a we're going to meet and figure out a launch date today after after i record this so that's kind of exciting and 
And okay, let's get on with the five questions. Five questions. I got some good ones, but I didn't I didn't look them over. So I'm just gonna kind of go for it. Uh, hmm. I have to I have to get through all the joke ones because everyone every time I ask for questions, you get at least ten percent that use it as a as an opportunity to try and be funny at my expense. I don't mind, it's just hard to sort through. It makes it difficult to sort through everything. Okay, let's see. Buddy Nestor, how often are monsters a part of your dreams? I would say almost never. My dreams are more mundane. They're weird and surreal, but they're not. That, there's never cool monster designs in my dreams. I've said this before. Although, I had a dream last night that uh, there was like Dracula and the mummy and a zombie and a werewolf and they were going to start their own fascist religion. They broke up this group of Satanists, these kids like or young adults. And the devil went in and took the main guy's robe and then the, the, the de- it was the devil, the vampire, Dracula, the f- devil, Dracula, zombie, werewolf, I think Frankenstein, mummy. And the devil was going to start a new fascist religion with these other monsters. But, you know, there was no cool monster designs. It was very much like Monster Squad versions or, or you know, uh, classic depictions. Usually the scary stuff in my dreams are, are not cool monsters. I, I wish that wasn't the case but that is uh that's that's the story there mm. okay this is interesting amilcar aldana fong hi chet czar what was your worst period of time in your life as an artist how did you overcome it wow um I I can't think of one specific terrible time other than now. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I'm joking, obviously, but I, I I do feel you know like I'm in a, a really weird place right now, just because it's you know I I just mentioned it, it's just too much to do and no time and still struggling and not you know, not living easy really when it comes to finances and stuff. I can't think of another time. I know I've had, I've had low periods where maybe shows didn't do well, but again, that just recently happened also with my show at Baynard Gallery. So they didn't sell for shit. It was the worst selling show I ever had. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm in good spirits. I feel good now, but I do feel like, I don't know, something is changing in my life. I think it might have something to do with this, with the, uh, my, my magical practice and spiritual practice I'm going through. Like, uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm letting go of a lot of things to be rebuilt again 
in a in a better way. If that makes any sense. Uh, I can't think of any as an artist. Um, as a makeup effects artist. Well, okay, I'll go as as a makeup effects or a, a commercial artist. Yeah, there definitely was a time in the '90s where I got laid off of the job I was at for ten years because I had a falling out with my boss, and I, you know, I was going to be a lifer there, and their business kind of went downhill, and they lost a bunch of work, and then we sort of had this falling out. I got laid off, which sucked. Then I got, I was into computer animation by then, and I tried to start my own little computer animation studio and we got a couple jobs, but you know, it just didn't take off. And I was broke as hell, um, on unemployment, no money. And I ended up, I was at a pretty low point at that, at that time. Um, but then I got a job at Rick Baker's, my friend, Bill Sturgeon kind of saved the day and got me a job working at Rick's as a painter on the Grinch. And then I worked there for, I think another five years, maybe something like that. But, you know, you get through it by just persevering and not giving up. Basically. That's always the case i think you know these things happen everybody everybody goes through it and sometimes the name of the game is just perseverance and not even getting ahead but just staying alive hanging in there because and just waiting for it to pass because sometimes that's all you can do uh okay so there's question number two let's see Here's a good one. Frederick Gorey Adams. What advice would you give to a skeptic who doesn't believe in ghosts, but, but, but wants, who doesn't believe in ghosts, but wants to, but needs hard evidence. Uh, I don't think there you'll ever find hard evidence. The only thing that might change your mind is, you know, personal experience, but <clears throat> even with personal experience, it's easy to go, Oh, that might've just been my imagination or, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the only thing I could say, if you want proof, I, it's not going to give you proof of ghosts, but if you want proof that, I don't even want to say supernatural. If you want proof that, that uh, I'll call it supernatural for lack of a better, better term, because it's really not supernatural. It's actually normal. It's just that we've forgotten it. If you want proof of the paranormal, even that's not right. <laughs> if you want some kind of proof, here's one thing you can do. You can go to this uh, magic.me uh, and get the free course on chaos magic and do it, follow it to the, to the letter, and then you'll see the thing that you manifested. Manifest. And that should be enough proof that there's at least something going on that we don't understand. Uh, I feel weird. I keep bringing magic up in the last few podcasts. It comes up. I keep bringing it up because uh, I'm interested in it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it now. So I'm, it's, it's very much, you know, something I'm into now. So, uh, 
but I don't want to keep, you know, pushing it on people or, you know, being annoying about it, <laughs> but it just keeps coming up because it's in my mind a lot. So I apologize if, if folks on here are not interested in hearing about it. I'll try and keep it to a minimum. But, you know, the thing is, I, I, I'm not, I'm very spontaneous on this podcast, so I just kind of go with it. So, so that's why. Okay, so one, two, that was three. Okay, Mike Godin, do you smoke or drink anything as you are creating? Well, I don't drink. I definitely don't drink when I create artwork. I've no, I, I don't like drinking, really, to be honest. I, you know, the only time I drink is socially once in a while but you know that's maybe like once a year i just never got a taste for alcohol or beer i mean it's all right i like beer once in a while but it's not like a thing i really enjoy <clears throat> um now sometimes i smoke cannabis when i paint um uh, because you know that seems to help you loosen up and become more creative but it's not uh, a, a necessity I know some artists that have to be stoned when they paint or draw um, but honestly around age 40 I started getting paranoid when I smoked weed so I don't smoke like I used to uh, it just something changed in my physiology I think I don't know but I just I, I can't do it. I used to be able to smoke as much weed as I wanted and never get any kind of paranoia whatsoever. And then right around age 40s, like boom, started getting all freaked out. So uh, I'm a lightweight now. Uh, I smoke cigarettes. That's bad, but that's true. Uh, but I don't definitely don't rely on drugs or anything for creating artwork. It's, you know, it's not really good to have to rely on anything outside of yourself to be creative. It's not necessary either. Okay, so that was, okay, that was four. Uh, okay, let's There's a long one from Jim McKenzie. For artists in the modern world, as we all know, there are many benefits to sharing work through social media, self-promotion via videos, crowd fund fundraising through various apps and platforms. My question to you is, being that we now use these methods and incorporate them into our everyday routines in such a major way, how does this affect the context of the artwork being created compared to the artwork created before the days of social media? What are some of the neg negative aspects of today's virtual workflow and how can we steer clear of them? That's a good question. I don't know that I have the answer to that. I suppose you could be one negative of posting all the time on social media is that you're influenced by people's opinions, maybe. Um, you, also, you may be influenced by stuff that you see that other people are posting, but I don't know that that's necessarily a negative because it depends how you use it and what you're looking at. Uh, like I said, I, I'm I'm moving to Patre towards Patreon. I'm putting all my energy there. I don't like what social media has become. 
it's definitely become a negative thing, I think. Um, the only good that I see coming out of it really nowadays is people doing fundraisers, which is always good to raise money for things you care about. Facebook fundraisers and stuff like that. That's cool. Sharing dogs at the shelter. That's cool. But, you know, other than that, I just, it's, it's gotten to a point. I finally got to that point where I, I've seen other people being like, I can't take this. I'm leaving. <laughs> I've kind of gotten to that point. It's just, uh, I just, I don't like it anymore. I don't like it anymore. So I, I do post on it to promote and I do post socially sometimes, but, um, I don't know. It's just like, we're, we're, we've become, all of us have become sucked into this virtual world. I mean, everybody's on their phone. It's a cliche to say, but it's true. And, you know, myself included, and I'm becoming aware of it. It's like, we're all just not living in the real world we're living uh, vicariously through this phone and it's like we're being disconnected from real life in a way and getting sucked into a bunch of stupid opinions by people who don't know what the fuck they're talking about and arguing with people who don't know anything about what they're talking about you know everybody's a fucking expert on facebook about everything and it's just like it's just a a path that leads nowhere it leads nowhere so i i like I, but i do like the idea um one of the things i like about patreon is instead of dealing with all this bullshit that you're forced to deal with on regular social media because you're getting a free product that's what you pay you're paying you're not paying a dollar a month but you're paying uh because you're paying by having to look at their shitty ads you're paying by having to deal with everybody and their grandma's stupid opinions about everything. And I like the idea that, you know, pay, pay a tiny amount of money and have a feed, a social media feed that's not open to everybody for bullshit. And that's what Patreon is, you know, so it's like a dollar a month. It's nothing, you know. It's easy to lose a dollar a month. Every people, most people probably do lose a dollar a month on bullshit or change, bear change or whatever. But that way, it takes all the bad parts. You know, Patreon takes all of the bad elements out of social media, and then you have this social media situation where it's tailored to what you like. You're supporting the artists you directly like. You can c communicate directly with the artist you like, and like my other like-minded people can communicate within that, within that um, platform and you don't have to deal with ads or none of your data is being mined. The people who run Patreon are, are uh, ha have had the opportunity to sell it for big, really big money to a corp, you know, like some huge corporation, a huge conglomerate, but they don't want to do that because they want to keep it good. Not, and they don't want it to become corrupted. The guy who started it is a, a musician. And he created it for, you know, because he was having trouble with YouTube and other free platforms, social media platforms. So I really think the future is, is Patreon and places like that to where you're paying and uh, getting exactly what you want instead of all the noise of, you know, thousands of people complaining 
Okay, that's five, that's the five questions. Let's get on with this. I've got to prepare for my grandchildren to come over. Yes, I have grandchildren. Um, well, thank you for for listening, and I hope you enjoy this interview. It's a really good one, Carrie Ann Bada, episode one twenty nine. Okay, here it goes. Enjoy. Hello, Carrie. Hello, Chet. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am. I'm great, actually. Things are things are good. I heard. Awesome. I heard it's the first day of school for you. It is. University is back in action. They like to get them before the Labor Day holiday oh, until term right. for a week, and then bring them back. So yes, <laughs> you're like. Are you a tenured professor now? I have just submitted all of the paperwork and I am in the process of clearing the department and then you clear the entire like a larger university P&T committee. Mm -hmm. But it is a possibility that in October or November, I can announce that I am a full professor. That's amazing. Um, I will quote, uh, I don't know if you know George O'Hanlon. He does natural pigments. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Big fan of his paint, and uh, I said, "George, I'm a unicorn." He said, "Carrie, I know some unicorns. I don't know any full professors who are painters." So that made me feel good. <laughs> I achieved something. <laughs> yeah, I I love that. I mean, you know, we go back quite quite a, quite a ways, and I've always been a fan of your work because you're you're Thanks. you're a great painter. But one thing that I thought that I I think is so important about you <clears throat> with con uh, context uh, uh, within the context of kind of the dark art scene in a way is that you are educated <laughs> you know your shit and it's like people like I'm like a dummy you know I got to call a uh, high school education and it's I'm, I'm self-taught with painting it's all very intuitive for me I mean I always try and learn but I didn't have a formal education so people that like my education didn't kill me and I survived. Yeah. It. Right. <laughs> it wasn't like a pleasure. It was pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My dad, my dad it comes from that um, era uh, where he said that art school almost ruined him, but that was, you know, in the sixties when it was all conceptual. Still part of that era. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I consider it the dark ages. I consider um, coming through art training at the turn of the millennium or the nineties was still the prior era. I right. feel like so much has changed. I try to, I always loved history and now I'm teaching history to my students and that, uh, I'm talking about MySpace. I'm talking. About <laughs> yeah. That's history. Now, right? that happened online where <laughs> our whole paradigm changed. We weren't just like one weirdo every 2000 miles, right. but lifted up this black curtain and we were everywhere. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure a lot a lot of your students just don't even know. I mean, that's to explain. <laughs> it's, it's it's really it really is crazy. I mean, it's it's the the best time ever in the history of the world to be an artist. I think, right? I agree, and especially to be a female artist. Oh, absolutely! Right, right, exactly. So yeah, my favorite example to give my students is I 
Well, I, I grew up in rural Colorado, so uh, there weren't really art lessons that I wanted. Like I was asking for oil paint from like age fourth grade, like age nine or 10, wow. and no one wanted to teach a kid oil. So I had to grow up, get a job, get a car to drive to the next city to take a class. And also with that came this ability to be at an art library. Mm -hmm. uh, this art center in Colorado Springs and they had an art library and I could check out a book that I could have for like four weeks that had like eight pictures in it. Eight. <laughs> and now we look at thousands of pictures before we even get out of bed. Right. We are, it's such a different type of exposure and relationship to what is art and what is making. Yeah. It's, it's, we don't even know the ramifications yet, really. I mean, who's in 10 years even? It's like, it, it's like every single person has access to all of the knowledge of every artist before them. If they, if they just go and get it, it's all there. It's all on YouTube. Pretty I much. think I used to be an okay painter, but like painters are so much better now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> all the access, all of the tutorials, all the exposure. I feel like we're seeing uh, an incredible rapid increase in technical ability i don't i can't speak for conceptually because that goes all over right. but i definitely feel like um i have to value what i have to say with paint more than being like the best technical painter i'm not right yeah and there are many many more now than there were 15 years ago right well i mean that's that's i always say is is that we'll, we'll never be better than the old masters. They already did it as good as you can do it. And could be, just because the time was different, it was a different time. Like, totally different. whole yeah. lives were devoted to it. They had, you know, everything they needed. They were getting, you know, a lot of them were getting paid for, for doing these amazing, you know. Which is an amazing idea. <laughs> <laughs> get paid for making art. That's crazy. Um, but I do think of this as a silent renaissance. I don't feel like mm. an, I talk about it, but I don't feel like enough people right. are feeling the impact of the exposure, the opportunity, the visibility, just so many artists making now. I feel like more amazing people are making work right now than have ever existed. And oh. just statistically, there are more people alive than have ever been born. Right, so. right. And then I guess the next segue to that, because I mean, you're not, can it all be good? Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, let me, let me, let me finish my point. My, I was yeah. going to say that they've already done it as good as it could possibly be done technically. So, but what we have is our own unique voice to bring to that. And that's something that they don't have, or they didn't, they had their own unique voice. We have ours. So that's what makes it special. That's what Even makes each, each artist special, you know? I'd like to be Bronzino now. I'd like to be Pontormo now. But yes. Right. <laughs> but that's what, you know, that's what we bring to the table as artists, is our own unique perspective. And the other thing that I'm all about um, is this occurred because uh, in 2010, a lot of, it was sort of, I was coming out of like a lot of pratfalls, just a lot of like, being rolled by life and disappointment and challenge. And I decided to go to Bali with Alex Gray and oh, wow. not because like I needed a selfie, but because <laughs> I need to talk to somebody who was real. Yeah. And he's the guy to talk to. <laughs> like you go to, go to see the wizard. Like I yeah. got some questions like number one, why am I making more artists in the recession? Like I finally got this job and I felt so terrible, like right. so guilty 
the recession hit Florida really hard and got all these people who are becoming artists. Like, do we need another folk singer? Um, <laughs> and he told me to read books by Joseph Boyce. Hmm. And after reading those, I really feel like some of the quotes by that artist um, that every human being has the capacity to be an artist was very important, very relevant, that human creativity is the real capital of society. Right. It's what we offers our creativity. And so I was able, after a year of reading and thinking and reflecting on our conversation, um, able to come back and be like, no, art's the most important thing you could be doing. Exactly. And it goes great with everything. Right. So <laughs> you just have to pair it up and uh, combine it so that it is, you know, is it functional or is it, are you able to make your ends meet with it? Right. That it's not an exclusive thing. It's an and. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's funny that you say that because that's like uh funny that you would have that thought because you know what, that's one of the noble things to be able to help create and nurture new artists. I think it's one of the most important things a person can do really. Well, and I've pretty quickly recognized, you know, you're coming in with skills. Mm. Um, I specialized in materials and techniques from like, 1250 to 1850. And I mean, what does that mean? I studied with some art conservators and I've looked at a lot of painting. I've made some reconstructions of painting. So mm. looking at the art cons conservation reports and attempting to recreate, like how, how did Manet get that brush stroke? Right. Um, what was the palette of Vermeer? And, um, I guess I've found as a professor, it's much more important for me to mirror what the student needs. And I can kind of uh, adjust or morph or, you know, but it, not all the time do they need to know like how to paint like a Caravaggio. Right, right. Sometimes they need you to be their drag mother and they're across, you know, they're, they're performing in drag. They're going to be on drag race or <laughs> um, they do very graphic video games about sexual violence. And I know nothing about video games, right. but I was the mentor for a very successful student who's coming out of UCLA's graduate, um, graduate program in digital art. So wow. it's um, far more magical and far more liminal than I ever thought, because I get to be the mentor or the coach for all these different artists. Right. And I'm not sure what the future is of painting when I look at all of their amazing creations. Like, what will art be? I have no idea. Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, but that's exciting, really. When it is. When you look at it, when uh, when you take it the right way, I suppose. it's Yeah, like painting is a gateway drug to right. other, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I, uh, I wanted to tell you that, can you hear that? Mm-hmm. That's my dog snoring. That's so sweet. <laughs> so if you hear snores in the background, it's not me making some. It's not you. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, okay. So let let's let's get the boring stuff out of the way. Right. <laughs> Just like the the you know how you got your your how you got this career that you have, how you started in art. I know that you wanted to be. I, I was watching uh, an interview with you where you said, as maybe as young as six years old, you wanted to be a painter or something. You know, um, recently on Facebook, there I'm not going to get the artist's name right, and I'm embarrassed about that. I believe she's Japanese. 
And mm-hmm. she is the illustrator of Oh, What a Busy Day. Don't know her. Very popular. I mean, there, I feel like there were 10 children's books in the 70s. Mm-hmm. A lot of parables. So if it was a children's book with imagination, it was so impactful and so important to the mind of a child. Um, but in that book, Oh, What a Busy Day, you could be like a fireman or a teacher or whatever. And it was like, well, there's only one real choice. Right. Be an artist. Yeah, yeah. It's three. So I had wow. come out, announced to my parents I was an artist, wanted to be a painter. <laughs> and I'm just really stubborn. I never changed. Right. And by age six, they were they had to take me pretty seriously. But then the dinner conversations got heavy. Like, how are you gonna support yourself? Wow. And so that did catalyze a lot of how I mean, from age six yeah, how am I going to support myself? So I, I had some years on everybody that way. Yeah, My technique was not very good at age six, but I was already <laughs> trying to figure out how I was going to pay my bills that I didn't have. I remember being in the first grade and already identifying that I was an artist and imagining that I was like wearing a, an artist smock and like a beret <laughs> and, a, and holding a palette and working in my studio. Like I knew at that point, but that was um, because I guess a big, a big, part of that is my mom was super supportive i was always creative but i think all little kids are creative all little kids draw she just always nurtured it and was really cool with it and i ended up kind of forming my own identity out of that and and it just never went away i just kind of got sidetracked into the effects thing for a while because i fell in love with that and i didn't have to worry about how i was going to make money because that's you know a lucrative field or at the time it really was but um So I'm with you there. I've, you know, since I remembered my first drawing at age three, you know, I do remember drawing when I was three years old. So it felt, you know, does feel, it felt genetic or something, you know? Um, I agree. And my brother, I mean, we both, what, another thing we have in common, we both have brothers who are artists. Mm-hmm. So I, um, my brother's five and a half years younger. And he also, like, I saw him at about age three drawing and was like, oh, wow, there's two of us. Wow. And I made a conscious choice not to compete. Like, Mm. that's great. There's more like me. Right. And I think I got lucky not trying to beat it out of him, but it's not, I don't think it's easy having siblings, you know, multiple artists in the family is. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think my brother told me that part of the reason he started playing guitar was that I was better than him and I was five years younger. And so he was like, fuck this, I'm going to learn the guitar. And then he became a musician. But uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, there's, I've got, (laughs) I have stuff going on with my brother. I'm not really talking to him anymore, but (laughs) let's move, let's move on. Um, So, okay. You, you went to art school. You were, you were the art. So, so I'm going to assume like 99.9% of the guests on this show, you were kind of the weird art kid in school. That was your. Yeah, that's a and given. <laughs> the only difference, yeah, I was um, the goth art kid and then just very competitive. Mm. Uh, I, I wanted to. I had goals. <laughs> yeah, me too. You know, a lot of artists aren't like that. I've always been very competitive and that's, you wouldn't think that if you, if you know me, cause I'm a very nice guy, but, but I really, I really am competitive. Like I, when I see someone do something great, it's like, I want to do something that good or better, you know? 
I've always been like that, but that's, you know, I think it's a good trait to have as long as it doesn't, doesn't turn you into an asshole. You don't want to be toxic about it or have success compression, but it's, um, I, I try to teach from the point, like we want friendly competition. You want like you're a runner and you want somebody to pace you and because they're doing better, you, it brings out the best in you. Exactly. Um, I'm not going to say I was, um, I didn't have a lot of people to compete parallel with me necessarily in high school. Uh, that kind of became like a solo thing, but, uh, ironically I got to the art Institute of Chicago and I thought like, this is it. Like you get every goth in the Midwest together and it's (laughs) going to be like 11, like you're going to be with your people. And no, no, they were kind of, I mean, it was like, they weren't like, we're all used to being the best single goth artists. So it, it didn't form the kind of community I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> what a bummer. A uh, so like, like where I teach from now is, you know, we're not, the herd we're in is going to be like the weirdos. You're going to have the 2d and the 4d and the digital and the installation. And we're all together, but let's learn how to be in a group and support each other and, do better critiques and help each other. Because when you leave here, you want to go find your herd. You want to go find your tribe and you want to have some skills. Like you want to be a good buddy. You want to be a friend each other because it's, it's otherwise it's really lonely. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That, yeah. That's another thing that my dad told me he coming up in the, like in the seventies in the art scene, um, in the eighties, he, he said that, that all the artists were like, wouldn't talk to each other. We're kind of like backbiting and competitive in a bad way. Wouldn't tell them their, uh, each other's secrets or help them. And it's just the opposite now, at least in this kind of, you know, the, the copro scene, the, 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 the art community that we're in, that we show in and the dark art community that we're sort of building from this podcast, everybody is like helping everybody out. It's, it's so amazing. There just isn't that kind of shitty attitude anymore. I know? agree. And, um, I definitely experienced that with dark art and pop realism in the United States. And then internationally, I've been showing with the more visionary art crew and I couldn't have asked for better friends or better community. I think we can always make better choices. You know, not everything we rush into is like wildly successful. We experiment a lot, like figure out what sticks and what works and where to show um, and also because the economy is bonkers. Yeah, so. <laughs> making a li- yeah making a living as a, as an artist is insane. Yeah, it's insane because you never know what's going to work, and even if it did work, it might not work in another year or two. For yeah. whatever reason, your fan base has bought all the studies they want from you, so they're not going to sell out like crazy anymore. Or who knows what? Some movie came out, and everyone's all into this and that, and it's it's just like you have to you know, keep your vision and keep going, keep going forward and just kind of have that faith that your people are going to find you and just keep, and and they always do. And I don't know. It's just, it's so insane because every month I'm like, this is the craziest, (laughs) the craziest lifestyle. It's insane. And I'll quote Travis Louis, remember the plan. Right. (laughs) I don't remember the plan. That's a good one. And whatever that is, because right. <laughs> yep. you have to stay the course. Yeah. A little bit. I, 
I I speak in analogies and metaphors um, probably to a fault, but when explaining art market to the students, I relate it to surfing, even though I've never surfed. Mm -hmm. The idea that you have to have some kinesthetic ability, you got to have a board, and uh, you got to go where surfing happens. You got (laughs) to waves. Good point. And you got to wait for the waves. And to me, the waves are the economy. But if you are in the wrong place or at the wrong time, or there's just no water, you're not going anywhere. (laughs) So there's a lot of components and it's not just about working harder or smarter. There are things economically beyond our control that really facilitate this. Yeah. It's, 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 that's the thing. There is no, I mean, you should follow the, follow the plan, but there is no sure path to success with an artist. Like every artist I know approaches their career completely differently. You know, what, what works for Gabe Leonard and his expensive G clays doesn't work for me, but I, I, you know, I do better with these studies than he does. And he doesn't sell paper prints and I sell a bunch of paper prints. It's crazy. Travis Lude is a bunch of little sketches that do really well. And it's, it's just everybody it's, it's, it's truly is a, the kind of individualist path. You know, it has to be, I think. And I didn't know I picked my job, but I didn't know it was going to pick or dictate my career. Mm-hmm. So, um, I can now look back and go, okay, I think I understand what happened. <laughs> I went into this position in 2007, represented by three different galleries and the economy, it was pre-recession. And to this environment and to these colleagues, like that's a commercial career. And it's taken forever for me to understand. So what is an academic career? What does that mean? And mm-hmm. Um, exhibiting is equivalent to publishing. So when they say publish or perish, mine is exhibit or perish. And the um, feedback I got after getting tenure in 2012 was, you know, we see you're doing well on these kind of shows, but what you really need are things in museums or things in Europe, or um, it really made me, uh, change what I thought my plan was or where I was going and try other things that are recognized mm-hmm. uh, and considered part of our preeminence or what they value. And yep, picked the show up and went on the road and did a lot of exhibiting in like Poland and France, wow. uh, Spain, but like not commercial venues. So, like, what's who's paying for it? So, right. I, that's a when whole different I, like, world. It's a very different world. And I explain to my students, everybody needs two and a half jobs in order to make art. So I guess one of my jobs is teaching and one of my jobs is writing grants. And the other one is trying to sell some paintings to break even. Wow. And uh, this, this was just a very different thing than what I thought. Like, I don't, I don't know what 2007 me would think of 2019 me. You know, it's been a long, strange trip. and at the end of each show, you're like, did I get an article or was there a catalog or like, did that, did I enjoy it? Did I meet nice people? Right. Did I get something out of it that enriched my life? Because of 
for this last leg, like since 2012, it really wasn't about the sales. It was just different challenges, like building a larger body of work and touring museums and uh, playing at a different level. Right. But now that I'll be getting, you know, ostensibly getting full professor, now I'm kind of like, I want to go back to the old court. I want to like, well, let's sell some things. That would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, uh, again, I'm going to bring up the idea that you're, you're, you know, you're an, you're an academic as well as a fine artist. You are, you're like, you know, what you're in, you're steeped in the culture of the real art world, so to speak. You know, I, I don't mean this in a bad way or like insult. I'm on the other side of the looking glass going, no, Chet, you're the real <laughs> world, but okay. You know, well, okay. For, for, yeah. yeah for, from my perspective, you know, it's like, we're kind of these down and dirty, scrappy, like, you know, just trying, like struggling to make ends meet, showing it, uh, you know, Copro to us, you know, in this scene, Copro is like one of the top galleries, but it to is. your scene, the museums, what's yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. It it's like, yeah, to my colleagues, it wasn't, I mean, I, I had to take, you know, you wear different hats, you put on different goggles and you're like, okay, okay. I get your point of view, but I don't, you know, it's yeah. not, to me, it's not a value judgment. It's just different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. It's, just, I, I, and I'm, and I'm not making a, a value judgment at all. I'm just s- saying how, um, just how different it is and coming from this perspective of, um, whatever I am, dark artist or copro artist or whatever you want to call me. Um, there's that, there's just a, a divide there, a huge divide. And it's, it's like the, the, the academic art world, like you said, it's kind of like we don't exist to them. And so a lot of us have this kind of fuck you attitude, you know, like we're the punk rockers, you're the establishment, man, you know, like <laughs> we're going to take you over or whatever. And uh, I'm just curious <clears throat> because eventually, I believe, eventually we will be in academia, I think. I think our our what we're doing will eventually become like this is the great art of the era, I, I believe. And so we still hope so. Yeah. I mean, well, you are one of the people that is the reason why it's going to happen because you're I mean, in there. Hope so too. I hope that's <laughs> true. And I've been finding a few, um, academics like art historians. I mean, I don't know why we need an art historian to legitimize us, but that's been the path to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, it usually takes 25 years after a movement mm. for someone to come back and like organize it and figure it out right. and legitimize it. Um, and I've, I was trying to analyze it and make sense of it while I was in it. I guess one thing I can say about being in a movement like pop surrealism or dark art is it's moving. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like being inside of a tornado trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> that's that's a good also, way to describe I'm it. I'm not no longer in LA or New York very much. So also trying to figure out from a real distance what's going on. Um, so that does give me some, perhaps some objectivity or mm-hmm. some distance. Uh, it gave me the opportunity to curate and bring the work to some different places, but I'm still waiting for the reception. Right. And I think an immediate response was, oh, this is commercial. And that's just so dismissive and so untrue because there is <laughs> artful ideas behind this work and it is not just surface. Right. It's just a way to dismiss anything without much thought right. or consideration. Uh, 
for example, Chris Mars's work has a tremendous amount of narrative and depth. Oh yeah. And, uh, it's, it's just all there, you know, it's a great Christmas morning package for somebody to unwrap right? and really sink their teeth into in a, you know, do you, you know, the books that are able to contextualize it as opposed to the, the other unusual thing, which was, this is one of the first art movements that really generated all of their own books. Right. And, That's uh, true it gave it another point of accessibility to the public and it was very populist. And that's just, that doesn't, that shouldn't uh, disqualify it in any way. It was just another way that it made itself accessible to the world. And that wouldn't have happened if printing hadn't gotten cheaper through China. Right. So it's indicative of the era. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the internet has a lot to do with it as well, which is, which is kind of why, you know, uh, you say in the past it's taken generally taken 25 years after a movement's over. I think the, you know, which may be true, but I do think the internet has changed everything. Yeah. So- we may not know what that is, that, that, um, statute of limitations for, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. It, that's it's, but it's, it's all, you know, it's so much chaos now. There's no, who knows what the fuck is going to happen. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's why I always say, you know, it's never been a better time to just fucking go for it. If you're an artist, just do it. Uh, Because there's, you know, there's the jobs aren't maybe uh, unless you're a professor or something, you're one of the, the few that can have like tenure and benefits and all that, but all the other jobs that like, you know, uh, blue collar jobs and stuff that my parents worked <clears throat> public schools teacher and stuff like that. It's, right. it's, uh, you know, Destabilized. yeah, yeah. Before it was like, you had a job for life and you retired and you were good and you could buy a house and all that. And it's like that, those days are over. Those days are over and they're getting, it's going to, you know, thanks to automation and everything, it's going mean, to get I hope that, I mean, crazy. for my sake, we survived something here. I hope that it continues to exist the way it has. Um, one of one of the narrative comparisons I make is uh, this is a research one institution. So my painting is my research. Right. And that means it's not a teaching college. A teaching college is your teaching is valued over your research. Mm. So basically my painting is valued over my teaching. Ah. And from my point of view, if I'm not painting and exhibiting, what do I have to teach? Right. So I mean, it's just what you're doing, what you should be doing. Right. Um, but the university, they are FSU, Florida State University, is my Medici's, as in right. they, I, not every research institution are the arts this well supported, hmm. but I have, anytime I need to pay for, you know, one of these international exhibits, and it's not like you're making money on it, but you can have your needs met, like the framing and the shipping, um, you have to be really parsimonious and careful with what they give you, but you can afford to do, I mean, all, otherwise crazy shit. I mean, how could you, how could you ha- afford to have these exhibitions without crowdfunding? Right. Crowdfunding? Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting to think that the academia is my patron currently. Yeah. It is interesting. <laughs> That's very weird. Now if they would pay for a monograph and um, bring me some collectors. That would be great. But that's, 
that's my job, I guess. Right. I don't, you, you know, you seem to have kind of a, I don't know. It's a, it's a fortunate position, really. Uh, I don't know that. <laughs> I'm not. No, no, no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't wish this path on anyone. <laughs> hey, I feel the same way about my own path. So <laughs> I really didn't have much mentorship. Um, I, I mean, don't know, you, but you what you're doing is so important to us, though. That's what I'm getting at. It's it like just, it was pirouetting through brick walls, right? And it, my husband, for example, he has a degree from um, a dual degree from Stanford and a couple of master's degrees. Very brilliant. But how many jobs did he apply for? One. How many jobs did I apply for? Honestly, easily 400. Wow. And I interviewed all over the country for years. I know my geography by where I interviewed. <laughs> and I would just, and I was an insomniac, so I'd show up and very often screw it up. <laughs> you know, I just didn't really have the support. Uh, I was always mm. going to be evicted. I was painting anyway. Um, I had hit that point in my life where I knew what I was painting. I knew what I was. And I understood what a starving artist was. A starving artist was, I didn't care if I ate. I didn't care if I was evicted. I was jumping out of the plane with no parachute and the world was going to have to catch me (laughs) one way or the other. (laughs) And um, yeah, I was kamikaze interviewing for for two years in the last interview. And I thought I screwed it up. Um, I was sick. I crawled into my hotel room on my hands and my knees. I called my parents and I said, I'm not doing this on my own anymore. I'm moving in with you because this is hard. Right, right. Um, I made on the books like $1,500 the year before I got this job. Wow, wow. And I think it's like a, I don't know if it's in every field, but in art, I feel like you have to give up everything and everyone. Like you get the divorce, you lose everything you had. And even like when I arrived here, someone like practically shaved my head. Um I had had just had a show in China and the Chinese government uh, tried to say I donated all my work to their museum. So I almost lost all my art too. So I arrived here, like stripped down and started over. And it was just the second everything was taken away, it was replaced instantly with everything to start the next level. And that's happened to me in my life a few times where when you sacrifice everything and you go transcend the level, like some kind of video game, then it's immediately replaced with a much better reality than anything you could have imagined. Right. Right. It's like the, the magician's path really. And the kind of facing the abyss and the dark night of the soul and losing everything and then becoming reborn. Yep. But I don't wish it on anyone. Yeah, right. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> it sucks. I, I guess. Yeah. My my point I was making was, uh, I think you know in the future, um, to be able to be one of the people that brought this amazing art scene to the attention of the, of academia is is a is a privileged position. It's amazing. You know, so it's like I, I, I personally feel so, um, I don't know, lucky to know you and lucky that you are doing this for us. And that makes me feel like I need to curate some more, don't I? Yeah, I, that, cr- that cute and creepy show that. was awesome. So that was, that was trippy for me that someone was like, okay, box up these things and we'll, um, 
you know, you don't have to, we'll pay for the shipping and we'll pay to ship them back. I was like, what, what is this? <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, the yeah, 2011 exhibition of cute and creepy. It was my love letter back to the pop surreal dark art community. Yeah. I met all these wonderful people no longer felt alone. And then I got the chance to bring them to the university. Um, I don't know if you know the statistics of this, 11,000 people came to the exhibit and like people didn't fly in. I mean, this is Tallahassee. It's 200, like 200,000 people, 250,000 people, but 11,000 people went to that exhibit in one month, Wow! which is three times the number that had ever gone to the museum here. (laughs) And it was the first time, like usually when things happen in the university, it's for each other and no one shouts out to the community where I worked really hard to bring in the people which was the lesson I learned about pop surrealism, which is it's populist. It's for the people. Right. People can have art. They can like what they like. And that's, they're allowed where right. art for that was very elitist. It was mm-hmm. for other people and you may not understand it. You probably didn't like it. And if you did, it was because a critic told you. Right. And so all of that, I took very much to heart. I was, I mean, I was always like, you know, trying to comprehend, you know, what's going on and why is technique part of this? Because <laughs> uh-huh. technique was my my love in the practice right. and low brow love technique, which right. is very chronic. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so a lot of this has been just trying to understand, you know, what is kitsch? How does kitsch play a role in this? Right. And I lecture on that now because um kitsch was such a bad word. Mm-hmm. In the high art world. And I think also pop surrealism, dark art was the revenge of kitsch. Right. Kitsch was a sword that says, this is art. This is not art. It's separated. Right. And something about the turn of the millennium and the internet swallowed that sword. They, they decided that they, you know, they liked it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they would exploit it. hyperbolic amounts of kitsch Um, and not kitsch like coons and not kitsch like Kincaid, but kitsch like sentimentality and nostalgia and something about the grotesque is kitsch within that. And, and it made, it just made beautiful intersections. It made a lot of fertile, beautiful, um, imaginative I mean, it was it was almost like the um carnivalesque shadow of all of the high art world came pouring out at the turn of the millennium right and we needed it yeah exactly <laughs> the 90s were kind of sad right so, how, uh, how did the how how did the sh- how did the people the people that went to the show like it i mean what was the response by oh they loved it right I mean, that was the other thing is they couldn't really tell who went from who went multiple times. Mm. I created a website that went with the show that had everyone's websites because I knew the labor of love that everyone put in. Like you remember Liz McGrath's older um, website was so freaking cool with the Ouija board, you know, so (laughs) the school's children were all bust in and they would sit down with the computers and they could go to everyone's website and look at their, their work. So it, it was this big dialogue with the internet and what we, 
what each of you, you know, is pretty bicoastal, uh, was definitely American, was definitely the United States, little Canadian with Heidi Typher. Um, and I know it wasn't international because we can't afford international shipping. <laughs> so it was very much a, an American show, but, um, it was, it was very special and it's viewed still to this day as like one of the successes of that museum. Wow. And it did travel to two more venues. Yeah. Then it's, you know, how do, do you get a show and you make it travel or do you just keep curating single shot shows? Right. And that's more like, it becomes challenging in some ways. I mean, that was the first show I ever really curated as an adult. So there was also some beginner's luck. It was a right. <laughs> it was perfect for the time, and the museum still had a larger budget. Ah. So it's um, the other thing was is I curated that show in 2007, but it wasn't put on until 2011. It wow. in my mind it took so long. This was an emerging thing no one had heard about, and everybody was getting a little fancy by 2011. And <laughs> You know, you're gonna you're risking losing some people because they have more important things to do than show in a museum and a university. What? You know, I mean, if you got what? things going on in New York, it's uh, less of a priority. Wow! So. Wow! Well, how did the how did your colleagues? How did the school? What did the school think of it? I mean, how did how 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 they, horrified were they? Yeah, did they take um, it? I mean, you know, as an artist. In this scene, you know, you know how it is because you are one, you know, the work's fucking amazing. There's so much amazing work. It's great. And it's like, we're, we're all sitting here going, why aren't we recognized by, you know, the people up top? It's so good. And the people, and everybody loves it. It's like, like you said, it's populist. It's, it's like anybody can enjoy it. You don't have to have a degree to understand it. And it has so much going for it. That we we're sitting here going, why aren't you paying attention to us? <laughs> so I'm, look I'm just at you, look at me look. <laughs> oh wait a minute, you froze. In oh, charge. You, you froze for a second. You're good. But but how how, how yeah. so how was it taken like from the 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 establishment? I guess how did they? What, I mean, how, the other component was I had sat on a committee, being very quiet for several years, and it was the visiting artist committee, and that committee had some money, and. Um, I had to watch everybody else take the money and promote their own artists. I mean, majoritively what I can say is the students are usually being exposed to an artist that they don't relate to. And I waited and waited and we had like a transition in our uh, leadership and I had the whole pot of money. So I brought in Colin Christian and that was awesome because he didn't even graduate from high school. Wow. And like, that makes it non-academic. Right. What is it to bring non-academic artists into academia? The students went nuts. I mean, they were looking at giant um, uh, anime women and uh, latex. It was wonderful to hear his fantastic talk about his influences and how articulate he was. Right. You know, that it was this opportunity that, Oh, just because you don't have an undergraduate degree, you didn't go to college. I mean, you still have taste. You still read books. Right, you, exactly. You love 
um, Stanley Kubrick, and you know you love science fiction, and you have a lot of aesthetic taste, and those things that happened in your life and being the child of a single mother have heavily influenced how you interpret the female form. And other artists like Chris Cooksey came through. Again, it was uh, just a time we lucked out. We just scored really big that we could bring in so many artists and the writer of the catalog, Nancy Hightower, to um, explain the work and explain it so beautifully. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, Swoon came through with that exhibit and I was able to get a separate grant and we redid the homeless shelter. So bringing in not just Pops Rule, but a the element of street art and what it is to bring art that isn't expected. Right. Bring art to those who don't usually get to see art a whole nother level of what is populist art right. in right. the most beautiful way. She left art all over the city that she didn't tell anyone about. It had to be discovered. Wow. And it wasn't why we brought her there. We brought <laughs> her to work with the students and do a community project That's and so just a amazing example of another um, artist of this time. So, so what did, how did they take it? <laughs> You're avoiding the question. I don't, I, I, I hope that they were. Did anyone sa- take delighted. you? You know, that's what I hope. Right. You, do you not, you, no one took you aside and said, this is amazing or this is crazy. The visiting artist committee after that. What, what's that? You, what was that? <laughs> they kicked me off the visiting artist committee. Really? After- Oh, yeah. I mean, the the pendulum must swing. And the pendulum swung as far as it could that way into the audience. (laughs) So you really sacrificed yourself for... for, totally. Wow. Everybody owes you a huge debt of gratitude. Well, it was fun. (laughs) And it was... I mean, again, curation is a love letter. Right. I don't think you curate to get rich, and I don't think you curate... If you benefit yourself, you did it wrong. You, right. you know, you don't curate yourself in. You do it because you really see and believe in others. Right. And that's cool. Yeah. So- <laughs> <laughs> I, I did, you know, I, I do that. Uh, I, I started doing that sculpture show, the conjoined show at Copro. Yes. Yes. And um, it's going to be the 10th year. Congratulations. Thank you. And, uh, I talked to Greg Escalante. You, yeah. know, you know Greg, right? You know what happened to Greg? I do. It's yes. awful. It is. So sad. Um, dearly. Yeah, he was such a great guy. Um, but I talked to him when he was alive about, you know, because he, he, he had something to do with the Guillermo del Toro show. Yeah. Right? And that was a huge hit. Like, they, 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 they made, from what I heard, they made it, like, Lachman made a ton of money. They had so many people coming in that cool. they kept selling out. Yeah. And that was like, that was a hardcore dark art show, you know? I'm sorry I missed it. It oh, really it a, looked phenomenal. It was amazing. It was so amazing. Um, <clears throat> they also put, uh, in the at least in the LA version, they put like original William Blake paintings in with it, like from their collection. So it's like we, me next to Bekshinsky and William Blake and all these. <laughs> It was, it was so cool. Really cool. Amazing. 
I, t- I told him, I, I emailed him. I, I felt kind of like a dummy afterwards, but I emailed him oh. after I saw the exhibit. I was like, man, I don't know if you realize how important this is for us as a community. He's like, why do you think yeah. I did it? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, that's why he did it because he wanted to help us out. I was like, uh, yeah. okay. Um, awesome. Yeah, he's awesome. But uh, I, I talked to Greg. I'm like, this conjoined show is so big. I mean, it's the big Copro's biggest show every year. Tons of people. We had to start charging at the door to try and keep people out. Oh. just to, to get less people to come and then more people came it was Have more openings yeah yeah right <laughs> it was it's and the gallery's too small and there's it's just like too big for, for that's the, awesome yeah it's amazing but it's i was telling as a curator at lack meta white your conjoined show yeah so i was i was talking to to <laughs> greg i'm like this should be at lachma and he's like he said they don't give a shit I said, look at all the, you know, all the people and all the money. It's obviously this is popular. And I just assumed, you know, popularity equals they, they'd be interested. And he's right. like, they don't really care about that. They don't care about popularity. It's more like there's people that make those decisions and what they're interested in gets shown. But, and that's, that's privilege. Yeah. It's and a that's, bummer. That is <laughs> it's kind of a bummer. I, I looked when I was, um, cause I, no matter what my art career is, my career is different than anybody else outside of academia and that I get to write reports justifying everything I do. Mm. I write them pretty much for every show and annually. And then I write large reports that go into big binders that prove that what I did was of some cultural value or significance. Interesting. Um, it doesn't make paintings is what that does, but <laughs> I do, I can justify right. my career. <laughs> um, so how I justified Cute and Creepy in 2011 was the success of the Tim Burton show at MoMA and also the Edward Gorey show at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. And those were both populist, popular, yep. and they mixed the streams because even at the Tim Burton show, I could see Marina Abramovic across the catwalk wow. um, sitting and staring at people. So <laughs> I think that the real uh, challenge I would say is how to tantalize and dynamize art at every level. And it shouldn't be exclusive. I'm not saying it should be entirely inclusive, but it should be dynamic. You know, you should showcase the unexpected and challenge, challenge people's conventions. Um, What's, What's come out of the era since then, and this was the horror of populism for me, was I felt like I heard the voice of the people and they like this art. Well, that's great. But then we heard the voice of the people and we got this president. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's that's also populism. (laughs) It felt so like, what have we done? Right. We're the art critics and we've gotten rid of um, any any kind of... uh, critical or authoritative politics uh, politicians that can make good decisions and right at that point um even my own students in 2016 most of them weren't going to vote they didn't believe in the election so here i am trying to teach materials and techniques of the old masters and i'm talking about voting and i'm like why am i talking about (laughs) it was so scary what was coming right um, I did convince them all to protest with me in October before the election, 2016. We um, dressed up as monsters, um, the undead. Cool. And at a first Friday here that has several thousand people, it's an art walk. Uh, we protested and 
we we had put uh, the signs for brains brains in 2016 <laughs> and we were not you know not democrat nor republican we were protesting the whole thing because we were pretty sure it was a bad outcome right that's great but, but at that time in the journal of higher education um there was this question that came you know as much as i love education i think it's its own thing we are an extension of the government and informed by the government and there was heavy criticism about the humanities mm-hmm. because humanities didn't make jobs why should we have them right so this myth that maybe served higher education that if you go to school you get a job and you get a better job because you have the degree it's not a perfect axiom it's not exactly true and it is devastating when it's turned around right because if Getting a history degree or an art degree or a literature degree doesn't make a job. Right. Well, then education's not doing its job. Right. It's not making jobs. Or it's, so not, a, it's not important if it doesn't make money, basically. Right. <laughs> and so it was just so interesting to read this article in the Journal of Higher Education that the function of the humanities is to humanize humanity. <laughs> it's not a birthright. You have to learn it. Right. You have to experience it. And as important as travel is, so is the development of the mind and experiencing other cultures and other points of view. So I just, I have to believe that humanity is better than any of its foibles, that we can educate ourselves out of this Mm -hmm. and through this. And yeah, we got a big education from that. From that last election, it was a huge educational moment for a lot of people that had to learn the hard way. (laughs) unfortunately and i will bring it back to your work what i like so much about your monsters is that they have a great amount of humanity right yeah that's that's what i love to do you know i want you to i want you to feel sorry for them more than afraid of them you know and i've taken it a few different ways when i've written about your work but i also see them as us yeah absolutely so the compassion is, you know, the monsters are us or they could be us after the apocalypse if we are not careful. Right. So. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, you could look at it as a warning. You could look at it yes. as the way things actually are and the yes. way people actually are nowadays. I, yes. I look I look at stuff I was creating from like 2005, 2006, and I was like, you know, I was predicting what was happening now in my own way, really. You know, there's, if, I, I can, I can see it anyway. I, 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 you know, I think all artists do that though. You know, they're sort of tapping into. Or literal. Right. <laughs> Alex Gray. Right. Like, that's literally predictive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I right. My work, and even in some of the most grotesque or dark art, I was predictive of elements of the Me Too movement. Mm, yeah know that that's something that was swelling and growing and abscessing and i definitely it was coming through me and my work and i did have a gallerist at one point just say like can you make some nicer work (laughs) i'm just like no "No." (laughs) (laughs) you make the nicer work this may not work out yeah um (laughs) Yeah, I think you have to be more honest to what's coming through you than the market, right? Where uh, you sell out. So yeah, yeah. I, I did. You know, it's 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 strange. One thing that I painted was this 
painting that I can't even show now because I think it would probably get taken off of Instagram. And it was based you on sent it to me. <laughs> I want to see it. <laughs> it's it's you know what I I didn't um I didn't paint it. I want to actually repaint it or okay. fix it because I didn't get it. I didn't nail it because I was. Okay. It was one of the few, actually one of the few paintings where I was like, this isn't right, but I showed it anyway. But it, okay. the concept is good, and I saw it actually while I was tripping. I closed my eyes and I saw this image and the, and the, and the title came to me. So it's like, Oh, here's a painting for you to paint. And it was called Nazi face. And it's like, and this, but this was before the whole white nationalist thing happened, like years before it. <clears throat> and it's, it's like this buff white guy from the you know chest up with a buzzed haircut. And his whole face is like this festering swastika, like a, like almost like a brand, no eyes, no nose, just a swastika that's all kind of disgusting looking. And his mouth is like this asshole. <laughs> and it was like, I, I was like, oh, this is great. But at the same time, I was like, where the fuck did that come from? I wasn't thinking about white nationalism or Nazis or anything. It, it just wasn't in the public consciousness like it is now. And Looking back at it, I was like, and I even, I posted on Instagram. It didn't get shut down or anything back then, you know, because that was before. it was more historic. Right. Like it was it, from the past. And it was more. And now it's our reality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was like, it was, uh, um, it was, you know, it was also super anti-Nazi as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. That was the intention behind it. Even though a couple of people were like, I don't know how to take this. But that was, you know, the kind of the beginning of this whole, you know, culture that we're in now. But uh, I just it tripped me out. It, 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 it wasn't until all this, um, all these, all this Nazi stuff started happening that I thought about that painting and how it just came out of nowhere. And I just painted it because that's what I do. I just paint what I think is going to be cool and what comes to me. And you just kind of let the chips fall where they may. It's just weird to see that, you know, uh, come to fruition <laughs> in a bad way <laughs> or, you know, the predictive element of art. It's been interesting to kind of well the uh the dark art scene does have international roots for mm -hmm. sure yeah definitely where pop surrealism is more the united states mm -hmm. um but the visionary scene is very global yeah and it reaches all you know to japan and south america but um it did it was weird to move in there from doing dark art and depending <laughs> on the grouping, you could be surrounded by, uh, it's a pejorative, but for lack of a better word, I call them white lighters. Like I know what you mean. <laughs> energy fundamentalists and it, people are more balanced right now, but for a bit, uh, like around 2012 positivism yeah. was really potent yeah. and yeah. I couldn't relate. Right. <laughs> so, um, it was a little too prismatic and a little too, Insistently upbeat, and um, yeah, it's not. I think visionary art, or just you know, what is that underpinning of? Well, I like to call it also intuitive art mm -hmm. to a degree. Um, you know, I'm thinking intuitive art with the artist being intuitive but skilled. Right, it can yeah. swing light and dark. Yeah, well, I've seen a concerted effort in recent like one of the last workshops amanda sage who's a great friend um yeah, did she's, she's great, she's great at the vienna academy she just did a, a workshop with students on the apocalypse mm, cool. and 
assisting them, midwifing them through their apocalyptic visions and what is the apocalypse. Right. And I just thought that was so incredibly brave and to the point where, um, you know, what is the role of the artist? What is the role of the visionary in the making images for the unseen or bring to vision something from the world of the mind? And um, it raised a lot of questions and it, I felt like it really unearthed a lot of potential. Right. That's yeah, that's a great idea. That's that's that shows visionary art being done right, I think. Because Alex Gray considers like what I do visionary art. He 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 told me that. And it's like he see he sees visionary art as the light and the dark, which we you and I and probably most people listening realize that's that's the case. But that's one of the reasons I, I couldn't fully get into the whole visionary scene because everyone was like, you know, it was the white lighter thing. It was like, every, every it's all positive. It's all positive. No, it's not all positive. <laughs> it's not. And it's not, it's not, uh, that's not true. It's not the no. truth and art, you know, fundamentally, I think, um, I believe this. I think most artists believe that art should really more than anything be about the, the truth, you know, getting at the truth. Mm-hmm. And, um, it just, uh, I mean, my mom was sort of that way, and I, I'm I'm glad because she instilled an optimistic disposition in me, and she taught me a lot of um, <clears throat> you know meditation and and cool uh, alternative religion type stuff. She was super cool in that way, but she was also very, you know, if it's pu- push the dark stuff away. Even though she she really liked my artwork, she was very open to it and thought it was funny and cool. She liked the dark stuff, but. But I just I, I see that <clears throat> within that scene, and maybe it is changing now. But I, I felt like it was a severe limitation of the yeah. potential of the movement. I think I've seen it move past that now. I mean, we're like seven years pa- past the point, really, of my entry and real investigation. Um, definitely, as you mentioned, Gray is a chosen name by Alex, and it's an right. intermediate of the light and the dark so it's a conscious choice and i love that about even what's that i'm sorry i'm sorry i got too excited just remember how he shaved half his head oh yeah that whole thing was the dark and the light duality you know and um you know i think also being deeply psychedelic he dealt with his own darkness through transcendence um but I think that, yeah, the pendulum has come back the other way for them as well as a community. Things being popular within festival culture certainly, you know, when there's money on something and things are popular, it's an accelerant. Right. (laughs) But for those who have staying power, I think they will explore all parts of themselves and learn and grow through that. And so it's, it's a pleasure to teach within that community because as much as within academia, I'm probably perceived as more of the metaphysical and the more, I don't know, uh, counterculture or hippier. But like mm-hmm. when I get around the visionary community, it's very clear I'm an academic. So it's <laughs> nice to get really immersed in another group that's outside of your comfort zone and, and engage from that, from another place right, and right. grow. Yeah, yeah. So, like teaching with Amanda is one of the great joys that I look forward to. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I remember Alex is the first person I I heard uh, refer to Giger as visionary as well. You know, Giger. Yeah. You know, G- I mean, that's as dark as it gets. And you know, I I I you know the the dark art thing to me is it's like it kind of is a subset of visionary art. I think you know, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> but just by uh, us as a as a group. I mean, with this podcast, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to galvanize the community because there's this huge uh, grassroots love of of dark stuff, of dark artwork. It's huge, huge, huge. I keep telling people that don't believe me. It's like, go to a mm-hmm. tattoo show and you'll see it. It's huge. Mm-hmm. It's really big. And so um, the idea with accepting the term dark art is was like kind of a for practicality's sake you know it's like this is what everybody calls it so let's just embrace it what's in a name a name doesn't matter just you know uh it's the it's the it's the content that makes the name matter not the name the name doesn't make the content matter but it's embracing the shadow it's embracing other it's processing shadow and one of art's amazing capabilities is it's a safe place to process shadow exactly and going to, I believe it was Rollo May, um, the psycho, you know, uh, psychologist. There are creative, creative acts and creative, destructive acts. Mm. And my go-to example always is Hitler is a failed artist. Right. So <laughs> if he had had a better art education, the world could have been very different. Right. And so, in that way, teaching is the first line of defense. Right. Or uh, humanity that we have to make people actualize and realize their creative potential, but then allowing the safe place to play and explore and have all of these thoughts. Like without art, how would you express this Nazi monster with a sphincter mouth? Right. You know, there's safe exactly. place <laughs> be exercised. Exactly. And, um, and generally, by our shadows being purged you know, it liberates others in some capacity. It's right. just a safe place to put all of it. And shadow, like we learned from Peter Pan, we need our shadow. Right. And we can't transcend our shadow. Right. And I, in 2011, started working with a Jungian analyst because I realized I was a cathartic artist. Mm. Um, like I was not just painting out of my shadow. I feel like I was um, spitting it back up and regurgitating it. Like it was, I was not, processing it so much as um reprocessing it and i felt like it created an undertow like i started to have some really dark horrible things happen in my life and was attracting bad things beyond that's interesting my normal karma would have been right and so that was also something i wanted to talk to alex about like um, why did this guy date turn into a serial killer? And why is this former student ha- having a psychotic breakdown at my opening on my work? And I felt like Alex could handle that. Mm-hmm. And his answer was the bigger, the light, the bigger, the shadow. Right. That's great. I love that. Which was so pithy and, <laughs> but it, it does leave one reeling from its essential, uh, absoluteness. Yeah. And it's so true. I think I've plumbed both worlds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you strive for one generally over the other, (laughs) but, um, 
it does give us more capacity, more content, more, more offering. Right. So, uh, it was just getting kind of like regrounded and regroup. And I think getting better friends, like like making an align, aligning myself with Amanda Sage and other artists who had better ideas. Mm. Like just how do you live a more meaningful life? What are your contributions to humanity? How do you engage with others? Help straighten me out. Right. Help me get on a much better life path. Not just like where you show or what you paint, but just like having really meaningful friendships and um, relationships. Yeah. Yeah, That's super important, especially for artists because we're so isolated and in our own heads, you know, (laughs) the most place I've ever been is my own mind. Right. (laughs) Um, And I populated it and I choose to live there. So if not really consciously bouncing that space, you can live in a really, you know, the darkest place I've ever been in dreaming or awake is my mind. Right. So I had to give some of that up. Right. Yeah. I, I've always, you know, I've always approached this from a purely, uh, you know, intuitive perspective. It's just been like, what do I want to paint? It's always monsters. They always make me feel good. They make me happy. And I just figure, you know, that's my bliss. So it's got to be good. <laughs> like, I felt guilty at first when I was painting all these horrible monsters. Like, am yeah. I am I inflicting my trauma on other people? You know, like I felt maybe. I, but that was more, I think, my my mother's influence because of the way she she dealt with her trauma, which was like not acknowledge it, her childhood trauma, not acknowledge it and kind of laugh at it. And mm-hmm. so um, I was thinking, am I just like you know, this, is this good for me, but bad for everyone who sees it. And then I started showing and, and every, and and seeing the positive responses and how kind and cool and nice the people that were attracted to it were, which is kind of what started this whole dark art society thing that um, I'm trying to build. So I don't even fully understand it. I just know that it is what I'm supposed to be doing, you know? And that's always been good enough for me, you know, because I'm not that smart. <laughs> so I just kind of go with it. It's like my, my my intelligence is my intuition, I guess you could say, you know, um, I, so, so it's. But what are your goals for dark art? I mean, if, if you could have anything, what, what do you think this trajectory, where would it go? Um, I, you know, I, I have this vision for, for this, for the movement to kind of infiltrate mainstream culture to a degree by allowing people to like explaining it. One of the things I wanted to do is I thought it'd be cool to go to art fairs and have a booth set up that explained why dark art is good and it's not evil and satanic and all this shit. Mm -hmm. So the people know, Hey, it's okay to like this, you know, because some people automatically just turn it off because it's freak freaks them out. So, um, I think that it would be good for humanity to to accept that part of themselves in that way, you know, as a way of embracing your shadow and acknowledging it. It's kind of like shadow work, I think, you know, like a therapeutic shadow work. So I made a, well, I have uh, had a back injury in the last 
11 years and I, for a while I couldn't paint, couldn't sit down, couldn't think because you're in chronic pain all the time. And, um, so I did some performance art because if you drink a lot of tequila and you do crazy stuff in public then you're still (laughs) creative, like it's going to leak out somewhere. So I made a performance art group called the art nuns. Yeah. I thought that was so cool. Remember I said, I want to join the art nuns. Oh, we'll take you. We're getting more liminal. We, we, we now have, uh, it, it was kind of a divine feminine cult and then mm-hmm. all the gay guys showed up and now we have <laughs> sexual males. So please okay, be cool. the next wave. Cool. Um, and it's a lot of it is a joke, but it's a real joke. It's, um, parody, mm-hmm. but I based it off of the Gnostic text, uh, by St. Thomas, the, the quote, that which you bring forward will save you. That which you do not bring forward will destroy right. you. Yeah, that's one of my so, favorite quotes of all time. It's a shadow cult. Right. You know, it's yeah. manifesting your alter ego. And what would your religious alter ego, you know, pseudo-satanic, right. um, <laughs> if you became a god, what kind of god would you be? If you right. deified or became a saint, what would you be? Right. And that allows us to kind of, I like the word hyper incarnate, like the more archetypes you can be, the more different versions of yourself you can manifest, then you grow into new space. Mm -hmm. Coming from the dark world, it was so easy, like on Halloween or for performance, like to dress up as death or something witchy. And a friend at one of these workshops, um, probably met her at Alex Gray's workshop. She's like, I challenge you to dress up in all white. (laughs) <laughs> i don't want to be an archetype that's an all white i don't want to be a white lighter you know but i i worked on it and i came up with a performance art piece where i was the high priestess but um kind of the fairy godmother you know but it was an archetype in all white right and you can flesh that out and figure out who you would be in that version of yourself right and i think we need more ways to do that because we're well when we're not dying tomorrow, we're living a very long time. So we should be as many versions <laughs> of our capacity as possible. That's why I like, again, hyper incarnating, right. but um, getting as many different points of view, uh, kind of stepping back from the character or the personality you think you are right. and changing it. Absolutely. That's, that's a, 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 f- a fully chaos magic concept as well. I've been taking these chaos magic classes. By this guy, Jason Lube, who's fucking great. Really good. And that's one of the things he recommends is is, as a way to um, uh, soften the ego to to be more malleable and adaptable and less rigid. Yeah, and fixed. And it's crystallized. He he suggests go be a Hindu for a year, go be a Catholic for a year, go be a, a Buddhist for a year, be a fundamentalist be a fundamentalist Christian for a year and, and I was <laughs> sort of scaring my ex-husband, but yeah, I joined a fundamentalist Bible study for a year because wow. I wanted to understand who they were. Oh, cool. That's, that's chaos magic. <laughs> that's chaos magic. What you do, and what you're doing. I guess I learned a lot from Alejandro Jodorowsky. Right. Have you psycho magic? What's that? Psycho magic? No. Yeah. Love his books. He really, I mean, some of it was, like almost like stunting, like putting people up to stunts. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it was sort of like performance art. And um, 
yeah, if someone was really stuck in their life and was unable to transcend, he would put them up to some task. So the one of the examples that stands out in my mind is there was a couple that was interracial, one was black and one was white. This was in Paris. So he had the black man paint himself white and dress in white, and the white woman dr- paint herself in black and dress in black, and they were to walk across the city. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. And the journey that unfolds from people looking at you, associating with what is white, what is black, and who are you to each other in these reversed roles. Right. So very tantric in that. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, I think their relationship was over, if I remember correctly. Like they had transcended the experience. Wow. As well. <laughs> Is this um, a book you're talking A book? Yeah. Because yeah, he's, he's way into magic and he's a big tarot guy as well. Yeah. <laughs> he is awesome. One of my biggest influences. Yeah. In the last 10 years is all, is, is Jardawaski. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's, that's interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm, I, I, it all keeps coming back to magic for me. Maybe because I'm taking these classes, but I'm telling you the last, I don't know how many podcasts it keeps coming up and, and I'm, and I'm seeing the, I'm seeing how art is magic. It really is. Yes. It is. It's the same thing. Um, I think even there's some quote, I, Alistair Crowley said that I, something along the lines of, uh, a good artist is a better magician than the best magician. Nice. Something like that. Because basically, you know, magic is, is kind of for everyone to do yes. manifest reality, create your own reality, live, the, you know, have the life that you want. And as artists, we just do that naturally for following our artistic impulse. So I recently, I put myself on a, a year long mission of, uh, delving into books started with 70 and then it worked its way down to 40. And then I studied very intensely seven books, but it was on the relationship of art and mysticism. Mm -hmm. So reading, um, Evelyn Underhill, who is a Christian mystic theologian, um, some Tibetan mysticism. And what was funny was, so in the examples of mysticism, all of their examples are art Mm. because it's the tangible, right? So like at the end, I really didn't understand what the mystics were doing. I mean, do you really just run around in like a diaper under a tree and like (laughs) stuff? But like, what do you do? Um, Where we seem to be those who take the realm of the mind and put it into a tangible form. Right. And from there, what do you do? You know, can, can art save the world? Um, I have to say yes, Me but too. are we doing it yet? Yeah. Not sure. So, <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> uh, I do have a suspicion that because artists live so much within the realm of the mind, that then this, and you know, when you close your eyes, this invisible space that is at once, you know, if you put your fingers on either temple, that's like six inches. But when you're traveling within your mind, it's infinite. Right. So if you are populating that with whatever you see and then whatever you see in your mind's eye, you make, um, my suspicion is, is that we have a, or at least I personally have a capacity for manifestation. If I want something, I can usually not just paint it, but make it happen in my life. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, how do we take it further? So is it about making it 2D and then making it 3D and then making it 4D? What is the intuitive capacity of this type of intelligence? Yeah. And uh, the irony for me was I got done with all these books and put this um, 
PowerPoint together and then realized if I had just read Alex Gray's Mission of Art Bibliography, <laughs> a lot of the books were in there. Right. <laughs> when I read The Mission of Art like 11 years ago, I had a really hard time reading it cover to cover. Not that it was inaccessible, it just, I, it, it was very dense. Mm -hmm. And I had a better time just doing bibliomancy. I'd open it to a page, get told something amazing, close it, put it away, <laughs> open it up, look at another page. But now I feel like I understand where he was coming from and his sources. And I could write him back and go, no, in my opinion, my humble opinion, you are still, uh, you still have the seminal book on mysticism and art. Wow. And what an amazing achievement it is. Totally. And yeah. He made this accessible to so many. I think right. it's an undervalued book. Yeah, absolutely. Totally underrated. I've been meaning to go back to that book. I read it. I remember when I read it, I was like, wow, this is fucking great. And I haven't read it again in my memory so bad. I kind of forgotten everything, but I have a feeling that a lot of my opinions were informed by that book. So now I present them as my own opinions, but I got yeah, it from that book. As we should. <laughs> the entire, you know, the entirety of humanity got an update. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, that's, what's nice about revisiting texts. And from another point of view, I'm a, I'm about to purchase all the, Jardawaski books again and read them again because it's 10 years later. Mm -hmm. I think you check in with yourself and see how you did assimilate that into right. your life. Yeah, yeah. Then maybe there's some more to grasp from those. Yeah. So that's such an interesting point that you brought up. Like, what is the next step to do this thing all the way and make it matter and make it count? Because it does, I mean, it matters to a certain degree. It certainly, I know for the people in the dark art community, what we're doing, just having this conversation is matters to them. But as far as, you know, mattering to the point where, you know, the whole planet's not going to die, what is the next step? And well, when you say matter, matter is mother and matter is the earth. So right. those, the roots of those words all go together. That's true. And I do think the intuitive, the artistic role is to be a better steward of matter or mother. Right. And I, I guess my, to me, the uncharted territory still is intuitive. What I call, what I'm comfortable calling intuitive intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I think that human beings are much more like trees. We now accept that trees have a canopy that telegraphs and it, they have roots that telegraph and they communicate deeply with one another. I think that human beings telegraph to each other and science hasn't quite caught up with all the ways we do it. Right. And I think artists very often are the intuitive class. Yeah. And the intuitive class has been uh, bred out, assassinated out, not reinforced, and has had very few mentors. Right. And I, you, sir, did have some very good mentors. Yes. <laughs> and um, how can we become the mentors that the next generation needs if their numbers are um, repopulating. If it's an equilibrium and a natural balance of human capacity, that's been, well, it has the opportunity to regain its numbers. Right. But how can we become the human potential that can save ourselves? Again, if human creativity is the capital, how do we unlock in a productive, benign way our creative potential? That's great. We may be the planet, but we have tons of potential consciousness. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're doing that. Trying. With your job. I mean, Trying. you're doing that. 
do you teach? Consciousness. What do we call it? Painting. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you're secretly teaching all the uh, uh, spiritual um, wisdom of the universe through art. <laughs> you know, w- when you're your best, you help, you know, sometimes I'm just a midwife. I uh, help people uh, breathe and push. Um, but sometimes you have the ability to really, you know, I really hope it has the ability to change the course of history that yeah. we're change. You know, the narrative when I went through school was that art was dead. Painting was dead. Art was meaningless. Art didn't make jobs. I mean, the narrative was so incredibly final and condemning. I even raised my hand in art, you know, like a survey class and said, you know, after all these art movements, what's next? And they said, no more movements. It's over. That's <laughs> it. So like you were looking at the end of art right. because historians couldn't be in the future. I don't know. So <laughs> I have the choice now of changing the narrative. Right. Art is important. Yeah. It changes everyone's life. It's one of the most important things you could be doing. Art can save the world right. because it's what's saving ourselves. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, every artist I know would go insane without their artwork, you know, and they, and, and the, that's one of the magical things about art is that, you know, aside from keeping you sane, it helps you to understand yourself, you know, which is something that most people don't have a way of uh, having, you know, other than maybe therapy or something like that. But yeah, therapy <laughs> is, I, I want to see us as humans put ourselves more into our intent. So Joseph Boyce says, even the act of peeling a p- potato can be a creative act if you are fully mindful. Right. And in going to Bali, there's a city of Ubud, and there, you know, it says in the tourist book, everyone there paints. Wow. And I thought that was so cool. So I pretty much just walked up to anybody who was from there, looked indigenous, and said, so do you paint? You know, taxi driver, the person at the restaurant, people in the street. And they'd say, yes. And I said, great. Would you mind if I saw it? So I just started going home with people to see what they were painting. That's amazing. <laughs> And they were good, you know, wow. it's in a certain style, mm-hmm. but like they seriously all really had a painting in their garage or a certain part of their house and they were working on it. So I guess that's my I- ideal for humankind is that we all have something we do or cultivate a practice where we are making or creating or expressing because it's what makes healthy human beings. Yeah. Um. And my other example, going tangential off of um, Hitler, is that, do you know what Winston Churchill was doing between the two wars? Because, I mean, in between wars, you don't really have a job if your job is war. Um, right. He was painting. Really? Yeah. He was Looking a great Sunday painter. George W. Bush is a painter. Yeah, that freaks me out. That is, <laughs> I mean, that is the next place to go tangentially in the analogy. But um, that, that's more of a re- redemptive. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say that's a redemptive redemption story, really. You know, that maybe everyone totally freaks me out. But um, <laughs> I've almost recovered. I have. Um, but yeah, would we all not be better versions of ourselves if we all had a very deep practice? Right. Yeah. So. I think, and I, I think that, um, uh, you know, 
meditation and spirituality and magic are also kind of like that. Yes. They are that. They're a practice for grounding yourself and becoming more connected to your real self. And it's like, as artists, we kind of have a leg up in that regard because we're naturally doing that already, you know? And yeah, where do we, you know, what is the role of getting ungrounded? And that can be great, but getting regrounded because we can't really be in this body long if we're not rooting down right. and growing up through the branches. Yeah, yeah. The tree analogy again. And yeah. I think, let me see if I have a quote that goes with that. Let me see if I can get this real quick. So this is a Frederick Nietzsche quote. It is the same with the human beings as with the tree. The higher they climb into the height and the light, the more strongly their roots strive earthward, downward into the dark, the depth, and evil. So that's how that's Nietzsche amazing. interpreted it. <laughs> that's so then cool. The second one, I, I'm going to guess this is a Carl Jung quote, um, likened to the growth of a tree as the emphasis on a growth towards the sky without a corresponding growth of our roots downwards into the depths would result in personal decay or even catastrophe. That's so amazing. So <laughs> taking that Nietzsche quote and making it much more, well, frankly, it's a little Alex Gray, right. you know, like we gotta, we gotta, we gotta reach up and we gotta reach down right. or personal decay and even catastrophe, you know, then it's our personal responsibility to go the distance. Right. That's amazing. Very inspiring. That's so yeah, cool. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're good at it. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, am I a professor? By, that's it's probably what it says on the paperwork. But I think ultimately what I am is a muse. I think right, a right. muse's job or an artist's job is to inspire. Right. And I can't make anyone do art, but I can inspire people and I can um, lead with enthusiasm. Right. Those are the gifts. Those are gifts of the muse. Well, that's, this was an amazing show. I, you know, I, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to stop cause I know you have to leave, but um, I'd like to have you on again sometime if you're cool with okay. that, because I didn't even get to, we didn't even get to hardly talk about your artwork. I wanted to talk all kinds of like technical stuff and just, you know, we didn't even get into that, but um, okay. so hopefully you, you'll come back on again sometime. But, um, but really I just want to talk about like ghosts and supernatural. Yeah. Stuff. We didn't even get into that stuff either. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you're going to have to come on a couple more times in the future. So okay. hopefully you're, you're up for that. Um, Definitely. Uh, in closing, I just I do want to uh, say again how how important I think what you're doing is for for Thanks. us for all of us low down down in the dirt motherfuckers doing it, you know, pouring our heart into it. Um, so everyone needs to really uh, we owe you a, a, a great debt of gratitude. So I think you are among my favorite examples in class. You were mentioned today, even without the podcast. Really. I mean, yeah, this is the thing is like all of you become, you are the textbook. You are the examples. That's amazing. Yeah. And <laughs> that's so cool to hear. Well, I man, mean, who wants to just quote books? Right. We want to talk about the real guys. Right. Yeah. Well, the living artists. If there's ever an opportunity, I would love to speak to, to your students or something. I don't okay. Know. Well, they, they, they accept. 
understand. <laughs> I like doing that. Yes, please, um, please, please. Okay. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. So amazing. Such an amazing show. Oh, I'm excited. I can't wait to post it. Anyway, um, everybody, you can join the Dark Art Society Patreon for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash darkartsociety. And thank you for listening. If you can't afford to do that, you can share and like and review and all that stuff. Spread the word because this is a big underground movement and it doesn't happen without your support. So um, thank you again. Carrie for coming on. It was excellent. I feel inspired. So um, awesome. that's all that matters. You remain <laughs> one of my favorite people. Thank oh, you so thank much you. for hosting this. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Likewise. How about the favorite people part? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's say goodbye to everybody. Bye-bye. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Make art. Yes. Do it. <laughs>